And so these church fathers, Oregon, we've talked about Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, are quite often dealing with two different things. One is the relationship between Christianity and the outside world, the relationship between this, these groups of Jesus followers and the, and the Greco-Roman world more broadly. And in that context, we've already dealt with apologists like Justin Martyr. The story of Satan is influenced by how Justin Martyr addresses the outside world and defends Christianity. One of the things he did, we already noticed, was that he identified the Greek and Roman gods as demons and that all Greek mythology is a, a demonic attempt by the demons to trick people to fall away from and take a substitute for the true story. Now we're turning to the way in which internally within Christian groups, how one Christian group uses demonic sort of language or develops the story of Satan in order to combat other Christian groups. And so we've already seen that in the first century, back when we looked at Paul's letters and when we looked at the Joannine epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And now we're seeing it continuing on in the church fathers through the subsequent centuries. And that in a way it's within this context that the story of Satan develops. So now we're moving on to these internal factors, namely the idea of error, heresy, and the father of error, or the father of lies. There's this development of the story of Satan, that Satan is the arch-heretic. That Satan is the main figure who makes heresy happen and, and leads people to think in a way that is filled with errors. And that uh, then you have certain authors combating them as though they are orthodox and the others are heretics and associating their, their opponents with Satan and with demons and with other things like that. With these internal factors, what I have to remind you of is how diverse early Christianity is. In the first century, in the second century, in the third century, there is no one definition of what it means to belong to a group of Jesus followers. There's no one definition of what you need to think and what you need to do in order to be considered a Christian or in order to be considered a follower of Jesus. Instead, there's the de developing process that will ultimately lead to certain people defining things in a particular way as right belief, orthodoxy, and thereby excluding other followers of Jesus and their ideas and their ways of thinking of what you do to be a Christian. And so this is a very gradual process where an opinion of a emerges and becomes dominant as orthodoxy, as right belief, thereby excluding other forms of belief that existed. And so this is what we're sort of witnessing in the Church Fathers, is this process of a diversity of Christian groups in, in some ways struggling with one another to define themselves as being the proper way of doing things and excluding others as not doing things properly and who wins that battle is sort of what, what emerges as uh, orthodoxy. One of the groups that's part of that diversity we've already explained and it's quite a prominent one in the intellectual circles who are debating these things and that is Gnosticism. So I won't go into details about Gnosticism because we've already explained it. And we use the uh, On the Origin of the World as an example of how the Creator God takes on the characteristics of Satan within the Gnostic worldview. But Gnostics, the uh, followers of Jesus who believe knowledge is the means to salvation and that knowledge is the knowledge that we're spiritual sparks trapped in a material realm, those people that thought like that that we explained last time are quite prominent in these church fathers as groups to attack. 
And there's a variety even of groups that think like that, right? There's no one Gnostic group. There's a whole variety of them that even they're debating among one another. So this is the context in which we need to realize that these debates are going on. The uh, great diversity of Christianity that is happening at this time. The association between combating groups that a person thinks are heretical and the use of Satan in, in that context becomes very clear in Irenaeus. He writes a whole book that attacks a variety of different groups that claim knowledge, namely Gnostic groups. And in the process, when he's dealing with them, he consistently brings up the idea that all these forms of apostasy, of turning away from God, that's what he would call these uh, different heresies, that all these examples of apostasy, of turning away from God and not having the right type of Christianity, are in fact rooted in apostasy personified. He thinks of Satan as apostasy personified. Now remember the word apostasy, a standing away from, can also be used, that's what it means, apostasis, a standing away from, can also mean a turning away from, a leaving, and a rebellion. So this links up well with the whole portrayal of Satan as the rebel against God. But here it's being used to battle apostasy in Irenaeus' view. In other words, heretics. And he's now seeing Satan closely associated, therefore, with these forms of apostasy. He's apostasy personified in, in Irenaeus' writings. And you see this coming up over and over again in the Satan language in connection with the way he talks about it. So, for example, he says this. There are as many ceremonies of redemption as there are leaders in initiation, mystagogues. He's talking about how these different Gnostic groups have their secret knowledge that you need to be initiated into. There's, he's saying there's so many different theories that they have. This kind of person has been infiltrated by Satan with a view to the denial of the baptism of the rebirth to God, indeed the renunciation of the whole faith. Heresies are caused by Satan. Apostasy is caused by apostasy rebellion personified. Another passage here that this sort of language comes up. Those who do not believe in God and who do not do his will are called sons or angels of the devil, since they do the works of the devil. Here he's actually quoting from that Joannine passage from uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that I talked about, where even back in the first century, a Christian uh, author might condemn other Christians using the idea that they're sons of the devil. So that's an example of Irenaeus accusing heretics of being on the side of the devil. What's interesting in the process of him trying to express his own idea of salvation in contradistinction to the Gnostic idea of salvation through knowledge, Irenaeus proposes a particular theory that becomes quite common in subsequent Christianity. It's not a new theory, though. It seems that it's a somewhat of an adaptation of what, one of the, uh, what Irenaeus would call a heretic's view of things, Marcion's view of things, namely ransom theory. Let me explain to you ransom theory because it relates directly to how this is an added component in the story of Satan after this time period. Marcion is not a Gnostic, but he has something in common with the Gnostics. Marcion believed that there were two gods. The creator God who created this world, 
he thought was very concerned with law and justice. A very legal-oriented God that created the world. He then also had the idea of another God. This is similar to Gnosticism, but different. The other God is actually what he would call a stranger God. A God who previously had no contact whatsoever with our world or with human beings. Who came to actually save humanity from the creator God. So the idea Marcion had was that the God who created human beings justly had control over them because he created them and therefore could require humanity to live by the law. In Marcion's view, this stranger God, the father God, who previously had no contact with humanity, actually sent his son Jesus in order to save humanity from the power of the creator legalistic God. How he did it was he paid a ransom to the God of this world who created this world. The legalistic creator God was paid a ransom and the ransom was Christ's death. Christ being offered. So that the Father God now had power and control over humanity and he's a loving God that lets everyone off. That isn't concerned with law. That's not focused on justice. So he contrasted law and gospel, the creator God, and this loving God that sends Christ as a payment so that humanity is no longer subject to the justice of the God who created the world. And you read about this in Russell on page 67. He does a good job of summarizing it. He explains different theories of redemption, different theories of how humanity is set free from whatever condition they are in. Redemption, right? And one of these theories of redemption is the ransom theory that we've just briefly said that uh, Irenaeus, sorry, Marcion had, and Irenaeus has it as well. So on page 67 of Russell, he talks about it, he explains it this way. According to ransom theory, Satan legally and justly held us in his grip. So in this theory, it's Satan, not the creator God, who has us under his power because of sin. In order to liberate us, God needed to pay him a ransom. Only God could pay the price because only God could freely choose to pay it. Under the devil's power, humans had neither the freedom to choose nor the means to pay. Thus God handed Jesus over to the evil one, to Satan, in order to obtain the release of imprisoned humanity. The devil eagerly accepted the ransom, but when he did so, he overstepped the boundaries of justice. He didn't realize he was screwing up here, that there was a twist in the whole situation that would make him not even succeed. For Jesus, being sinless, could not be justly held in replacement for the sins of the people he was being a ransom paid for. By breaking the rules of justice, the devil lost his rights and could no longer hold either Jesus or the human race. So God plays a trick on Satan in this ransom theory in order to free humanity from the power of the devil. Remember that this idea of humanity being under the power of the devil is linked up with the, idea of the ideas we've already seen. The idea that the Satan is the god of this world, that we even have in Paul's letters. That because of sin, because of even the Adam and Eve story, once you have that linked up with Satan, because of sin, humanity is under the, the control of the god of this world, Satan. And so needs to be set free. And this is the particular way in which Irenaeus explains the, how it, it happens that they are set free. So that's quite an important example of uh, Irenaeus combating heresies and in the process developing this 
an additional story about Satan, where Satan gets paid by God with Christ in order to free humanity from the power of Satan. Let me read you a passage from Irenaeus that relates to this. And he talks about Satan as the apostasy. This is uh, Irenaeus' own explanation of some of that ransom theory. And though the apostasy tyrannize over us unjustly, Satan ruled over us, and when we belonged by nature to Almighty God, had snatched us away contrary to nature and made us his own disciples, God's word, mighty in all things and not failing in justice, behaved with justice even towards the apostasy itself. So God behaves just in relation to apostasy. Okay, apostasy, Satan, I'm going to pay you to get back what you've rightly overtaken uh, in some ways because of the sin of humanity. He redeemed that which was his own, not by violence, but by persuasion, as it is fitting for God to gain his ends through persuasion. So there's a sort of a little snippet of Irenaeus' own uh, description of the ransom theory, and there's other passages we could have gone into. But Oregon uh, takes it on, and therefore this begins to become a standard way of explaining what Jesus' death means in relation to Satan within Christianity. 185 to 254 is when Oregon is writing and living. And here's what Oregon has uh, taken on from Irenaeus and developed. He has the idea of the deception of the devil by God here. So God has to do a bit of a deception in this whole theory. But to whom did Christ give his soul as a ransom for many? By the way, that phrase of ransom for many is a passage from the New Testament, right? And they're here expanding it into a theory. Surely not to God. Was it then to the evil one? For he had power over us until the soul of Jesus was given as a ransom for us, since he let himself be deceived, thinking he could have power over that soul, and not recognizing that to keep him would require a trial of strength that he was not equal to. So God pays the ransom of Jesus to replace the control Satan has over humanity, and instead he has control over Jesus, but he can't hold Jesus. Augustine, I want to move forward to Augustine and show how even in Augustine's time, Augustine's writing in the late 300s and into the 400s, even in Augustine's time, we still have this whole development of Satan's story in relation to how a Christian intellectual is trying to combat other Christian groups. And in Augustine's time, it's the Manichees and the Pelagians that are his enemies, so to speak, within Christianity. Augustine lives by the time that Constantine has made Christianity the official religion of the empire. Remember, Constantine is in the early 300s, and he decides he's going to make the Christian god the patron deity of the Roman Empire, instead of the Greek and Roman gods uh, being the, the uh, mascots. After that time, obviously things change, and there's a gradual Christianization that takes place. But it's a long time before what would be called paganism by the Christians. It's a long time before paganism dies out. But Augustine is one of these intellectuals in that context who lives a good amount of his life as a pagan intellectual who actually joins a variety of different groups and tries to explore the problem of evil within each of the places he studies. So he studies Platonic philosophy. He studies and becomes a Manichae, a follower of Mani. And eventually he converts to Christianity. You can read that if you want to in his uh, Confessions, that famous writing where he sort of documents his story. But throughout his whole struggle, he was often dealing 
with the problem of evil, that theodicy question that we've come across again and again. That is, how do we explain uh, the, the world having evil and, and bad things within it? And how do we explain that in relation to the idea of there being a God that relates to that world? How do we explain the existence of a good God and, and an evil uh, situation? And so he struggled with that in all the different places he uh, studied and the different sort of groups he belonged to, including the Manatees. What's more, most important for us here, and we're going to have to get straight to the point, is the way in which his attitude towards his former group, the Manatees, influences how he deals with evil subsequently. He actually rejects the Manichae view of evil and goes in a different direction on the one hand. And on the other hand, how he responds to the Pelagians ends up pushing him in a certain direction for explaining evil. So that he takes sort of the middle way, you could say, between the Pelagians and the Manichaeans. Let me quickly say what I mean by that. So the Manichaeans are very Gnostic, similar worldview to what you've already learned about Gnosticism. Manny was a guy in the early 200s who died in about 270s CE. He combined Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, and Christianity as a quick way of putting it. But he had the main Gnostic worldview, and that is that there is evil bound up in the world we know, the material realm around us. There's a perfect world that's apart from this world, that, that is totally not evil, that is totally good. And that God sent a Christ uh, in that context to save humanity from being entrapped within the material realm. So that same Gnostic worldview we explained extensively uh, last week is held by the Manichees, even though they throw in a whole lot of other things and there's a lot more nuances to it that we can't go into. But what's important here is that within the Manichee worldview, evil is explained as inherently part of this world, and that it was so from the beginning. Manny took that Zoroastrian concept of the two spirits at war with one another and thought of that as already there from the very beginning, the good and the evil. So evil is evil by nature. This is important for you to understand what you've read in Augustine's response to that. Augustine argues that there is no such thing as evil. There's only deprivation of good, and you can call it evil. But there's no thing that is evil in and of itself, and that always was evil, in Augustine's view. He's responding to the fact that the Manichees' foundation thought is that there always was evil, and it's totally in opposition to good, uh, and that evil personified definitely exists. Right? So Augustine's actually going to undermine the whole notion of the Satan indirectly in his development of these ideas in response to his former Manichae position. Let me say something very quickly about the Pelagians. The Pelagians believed in emphasizing free will. They had an optimistic view. The, the Pelagians say that humanity optimistically can overcome sin. Humanity can actually live, if they try, and do things the right way, can actually live in a way that overcomes sin. That we're not destined to evil. That we're not destined to sin. Evil can be overcome. That it's not a prominent force. That's the quick way of saying it. There's all kinds more that should be said about it, but we can't. 
This is where Augustine developed his famous theory of original sin in reaction to. He was already developing this idea anyways. But it's especially in response to Pelagians who have an optimistic view of humanity being able to, if they live the way God wants them to, to actually overcome sin and not be sinful and therefore not be evil. And evil to be obliterated, so to speak. Augustine saying no. It's impossible to avoid sin. We are born with sin. It's a sexually transmitted disease. It's the easiest way for you to remember it. Quick way of summarizing Augustine's theory of the idea of original sin. Through sex, sin is passed on from generation to generation. You are born sinful inherently. You're not born evil inherently. He doesn't think that. But you're born sinful inherently. And you need God's grace. And so that's where that whole uh, original sin versus God's grace comes into uh, Augustine's views. But when he's struggling with these two uh, sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, he comes down in the middle. And it's in the process of doing that that he deals with evil and the idea of the devil in the passages you read. Let's quickly look at them in five minutes here. So you read passages from the City of God, which was written by Augustine in response to the destruction of Rome in 410 CE. Remember, Rome's already a Christian empire, so this is a huge conundrum for Christians. Why is God's empire getting uh, sacked by the barbarians? And so he writes the whole City of God. It's a massive tome, as you may know, and we've just got a few passages here. Let me draw attention to some that help you understand the Manichae situation the response to the Manichees playing a role in his understanding of evil. Let's talk about the different types of angels and the question of the phrase, the devil sins from the beginning. He's debating uh, people interpreting that as meaning that, that, that evil was there from the very outset. In other words, the Dead Sea Scrolls idea and the Zoroastrian idea of there being two principles from the beginning, the evil and the good, already, from the beginning. Augustine wants to interpret this in a way that doesn't think that, that doesn't think it was there from the beginning. Instead, that says that no, there was no evil from the beginning. Actually, evil, he's going to end up saying, doesn't exist. But here he's dealing with the Manichees. Look at this paragraph. Whoever acquiesces in this view, the view that uh, the idea that the devil sinneth from the beginning means that evil was there from the beginning alongside good. Whoever acquiesces in this view does not thereby agree with the heretical Manichaeans or with any other pestilential sect believing, as the Manichaeans do, that the devil has received an evil nature peculiar to himself from some adverse first cause. In other words, he's evil by nature, in the Manichae view. Augustine rejects that. These persons are made so foolish by their own vanity that, though they agree with us in ascribing authority to the words of the evangelists, they use the Gospels, they fail to notice that the Lord did not say that the truth was absent from the devil's nature. Rather, he said that he abode not in the truth. By this, he wished to us to understand that the devil had fallen away from the truth, in which, had he remained steadfast, he would have been made a partaker, etc. So falling away, the apostasy idea is here as well. Um, and the idea is that, no, Satan was not evil from the beginning. He became evil through will. So he develops that even on that on the opposite page there under section 15. How are we to understand the words the devil sins from the beginning? And he further un underlines that whole thing. 
contrasting to this pessimistic view of the Manichees, his former view, which was that evil is ingrained and has been there from the very beginning as an opposing force to good. He now rejects that. So that's what I wanted to highlight as an example of this. I, don't, I better not go into more examples, otherwise we'll run out of time. That other passage you read in the Enchiridion, in the handbook, deals explicitly with the problem of evil and underlines over and over again that evil does not exist in and of itself. That for Augustine, there's no such thing as evil. There's only diminished good. There's no such thing as evil. There's only diminished good. The only reason he has a devil anymore is because he's inherited it. His philo philosophical musings eliminate the need for a devil. But Augustine's a Christian who's inherited the story of the fallen angels, who's inherited the, all those different passages we've been studying that get pulled together into the story of Satan. He's inherited all that. So he still has Satan. And yet his philosophical view of good and evil and theodicy doesn't even require the existence of Satan. So this is an interesting thing to note about Augustine's view overall, because there's no such thing as evil. There's only belittling of good, or privation of good, is another way of putting it. So everything by nature is good, but as it gets further from the origins of good, there's a lessening of the goodness that humans call, label, evil. But there's nothing by nature that is evil. So do you understand that concept that he has? That's what that whole passage was trying to uh, say to you. So there you have a quick glimpse of some ways in which church fathers are struggling internally with other groups and in the process dealing with the problem of evil and in the process dealing with the story of Satan and expressing new things to add to the story of Satan in the process as well. And we'll come back to Augustine when we talk about hell next week. That'll be the whole focus. I'll sort of give you a history of hell up to Dante. And then we'll analyze Dante a bit to see how important he is for the understanding of hell and where Satan is in hell within Dante's view.